and liftoff. Decollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. You just heard the liftoff of the new James Webb Space Telescope, which took place on Christmas Day, 2021. And even though the Webb Telescope has already produced valuable data and some beautiful photographs, even before liftoff, there was controversy surrounding this telescope. Dave Robinson here, and you are listening to Bench Talk, the Weekend Science. Now, we've already discussed the photos taken by the Webb Scope. Just check out our episodes from March 14th and July 18th of 2022. You can find it on the web. Just Google Bench Talk The Weekend Science. But today we're going to rebroadcast a story produced by a group of activist scientists called the Just Space Alliance. The Just Space Alliance thinks that naming the latest telescope after James Webb is wrong. We'll get into the details of that in just a few minutes, but first, here is J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College telling us what we can see in the night sky during the month of August. Take it away, Scott. Early August skies find no planets to see as darkness falls roughly around 9.30 in the evening. This is definitely not the season of planets because no naked eye planets are visible in the early evening sky. It will be a bit later until one makes its appearance over the eastern horizon. So, for the moment, I concentrate on the visible constellations. Noting the lingering light of sunset as generally west, I sweep my gaze around to the south where there are several constellations that are easy to see. The constellation Scorpius the Scorpion can be seen almost due south. Its brightest star, Antares, has a reddish hue to it. Antares is a red supergiant a star with a diameter of about 700 times that of the sun in visible light. Radio wavelengths indicate its atmosphere is far larger than this. Red supergiant stars are stars much farther along in their lives than stars like the sun, and in their lives in gigantic explosions known as supernova. At a distance of 550 light years, if this happens in the lifetime of humans, it will be spectacularly bright, but not much of a threat to life here. Antares marks the heart of the scorpion. To its right are three stars, one above the other, marking the face of the scorpion. Dimmer stars beyond these three can be considered parts of its claws. To the left of Antares is a string of stars about the same brightness moving down toward the southern horizon, then back up, ending at two stars nearly side by side. This would be the tail and stinger, respectively, of the scorpion. Just west of Scorpius can be found Libra the Scales. At one time, Libra was considered the claws of the scorpion. Of the constellations that mark the zodiac, the sun's apparent path along the sky over the course of a year, it is the only inanimate object. The others consist of some form of living entity, real or imagined. Libra is simple, mainly consisting of four stars of about the same brightness forming a somewhat squished square. To the left of the tail of the scorpion is the constellation Sagittarius the Archer. This constellation is supposed to be a centaur aiming an arrow notched in its bow toward the scorpion. But as a shape easy to identify, it looks more like a teapot. The stars are all about the same brightness. A triangle star closest to the tail of Scorpius would be the spout of the teapot. 
To the left of the spout are four stars shaped almost like a rectangle, which would be the handle. The bowl of the teapot is in between these two shapes, and one additional star above the bowl marks the lid of the teapot. The spout of the teapot has passing through it the band of the Milky Way, which continues up across the sky on over toward the northeast. The Milky Way is produced by the disk of stars that make up our galaxy and appears to wrap around us because we are within that disk. The center of the galaxy is off in the direction of the spout of Sagittarius. We and the other stars that make up our galaxy orbit that region. There is evidence of a supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, as has been discovered at the heart of other galaxies. But there is little to fear from it. At a distance of about 26,000 light years, it is too far away to draw us in. In fact, black holes are generally in control of the area near to them and simply act as massive bodies just like other massive bodies at greater distances. If our sun was replaced by a black hole of the same mass as the sun, for example, we would keep orbiting it just as we orbit the sun today. Yes, it would be dark and cold, and we likely wouldn't survive, but the Earth would orbit that black hole just like it orbits the sun in its stable orbit. If I stay out long enough finding constellations, or if I start out to do so later in the evening, the first planet may have a chance to clear the eastern horizon. Saturn rises close to 10 p.m. in early August, but may require an extra half hour to hour to clear trees or other nearby obstructions along the east-southeast horizon. Saturn holds a fascination for people, especially for those using telescopes to glimpse it, because of its system of rings. It is well worth waiting for in the evening sky. After that, closer to midnight, and perhaps a bit past it, Jupiter will make its appearance in the eastern skies. Brighter than Saturn, it will definitely catch your eye as it easily outshines the stars in that direction. And about two hours later, Mars clears the horizon, is shining about as bright as Saturn is at this time. The other thing I like to look for in August skies are shooting stars. As August opens, several minor showers are active, though past the date of their peak activity. These would be the Alpha Capricornids, the Delta Aquarians, and the Eta Aquarians. Sporadic at best, you might simply be surprised by meteors coming out of the southern sky direction. But the anticipated meteor shower of August is known as the Perseid meteor shower. The Perseid shower is a broad date phenomenon with specific night when one might see many more meteors than any other in the range of dates. One can see Perseid meteors from about July 17th through August 26th this year, but the peak night will be overnight from August 12th to the early morning of August 13th. Often a good shower with hourly rates of 30 or so, this year the moon may be an issue during peak times, as it will be full and be up in the sky all night long. Sometimes Perseids can include fireballs or bolides, extremely bright meteors, which can be seen despite the moon. But this year the count will be less than normal, at least around the date of peak activity. Best to look for some as the month unfolds. Meteor showers are patience builders. First one needs dark skies away from city lights if one wants to see the most possible. I get comfortable chairs to sit on or even a blanket to lie on, though sleep may overtake you if you are not careful in that reclined position. 
The Perseids get their name because they seem to come from the direction of the constellation called Perseus, which rises around midnight in the northeastern sky. There may be some meteors seen before midnight, but the count increases as the night continues. Once comfortable, further patience building comes from the wait to see any meteors. I can scan the whole sky and generally not in the direction of Perseus itself. The meteors may have their path traced back to Perseus, but are seen well away from that constellation. With others accompanying me, watching the whole sky is easier, but it can be disappointing when they, and maybe not you, get to see one. Like constellation finding, this is an activity that only needs your eyes and a dark sight to view from. Friends and our family make it much more fun and help pass the time. We just heard from Professor J. Scott Miller. Thanks for that update, Scott. And now, the James Webb Space Telescope. Thanks to the Just Space Alliance, we have permission to rebroadcast their video about the naming of this amazing telescope. We won't be able to play the entire piece right now, so we'll finish it on our next show, but we will provide a link to the full video on our SoundCloud page and our Facebook page. And after we've heard from the Just Space Alliance, I'll try to tell you about NASA's position on this contentious issue. But in the meantime, here it is, a discussion of the controversy about the naming of this telescope. And liftoff. Decollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. Launched in December 2021, NASA's newest space observatory is set to open a new chapter in astronomy. Thousands of people across 14 countries worked together to get this massive, complex spacecraft assembled and placed 1.5 million kilometers from Earth, where its tennis court-sized sunshield cools the telescope enough for its 18 gold-plated mirror segments to reflect the faint glow of heat emanating from objects throughout the universe. These infrared wavelengths will reveal chemical signatures in the atmospheres of exoplanets, stars forming behind clouds of gas and dust, and the earliest galaxies from shortly after the Big Bang. It's an awe-inspiring mission, but does its name invoke the same spirit of scientific exploration and shared humanity as the telescope itself? We are not waging a cold war. After the Hubble Space Telescope, named for astronomer Edwin Hubble, NASA continued to name most of its space telescopes after scientists. Typically, these missions would start with a technical name and then get renamed around the time it was launched. What I have heard as a rationale for that is like, in case of a launch failure, families of often didn't want to be associated with their just failed space telescope. So often they renamed the telescope after the successful commissioning of a telescope. Five months after the Gamma Ray Observatory launched in 1991, it was renamed after physicist Arthur Holly Compton. NASA renamed the X-ray Timing Explorer after astronomer Bruno Rossi three months after it launched in 1995. And in 1998, NASA announced a public contest to rename the Advanced X-ray Astrophysics Facility. 
The winning submission from a high school student was the Chandra X-ray Observatory in honor of Indian American Nobel laureate Subramanian Chandrasekhar. The Shuttle Infrared Telescope Facility was first renamed the Space Infrared Telescope Facility, and then after another public contest was renamed the Spitzer Space Telescope four months after it launched in 2003. In 2008, there was a contest to rename the Gamma Ray Large Area Space Telescope, which resulted in the observatory being renamed after physicist Enrico Fermi two months after launch. JWST took a different path. It was before construction even began that NASA announced the Next Generation Space Telescope would be renamed in honor of James E. Webb. Rather than going through any formal naming process, NASA Administrator Sean O'Keefe decided on the name himself in 2002. And in broad terms, our mandate is to pioneer the future, to push the envelope, to do what has never been done before. This took many in the astronomy community by surprise. Partners on the project apparently weren't consulted, and scientists wondered, who? One good person to ask who is science historian Audra Wolf, an expert on the role of science during the Cold War. So James Webb, who's usually referred to as Jim Webb, uh, is most famous for being the director of NASA during the Apollo years. He had previously been the Undersecretary of State under Truman. That's a second in command job at the State Department. He had also been director of the Bureau of the Budget. Uh, so he wasn't so much an engineer or a uh, any kind of space scientist, but a seasoned bureaucrat who knew a lot about uh, the workings of government. He is now bringing all of his remarkable skills of leadership and management to the service of our nation in this most urgent program in space. It is with particular pleasure that I present the Honorable James E. Webb. NASA says they're honoring James Webb not just for his leadership during Apollo, but also for pushing to have a balanced program with a focus on science. The whole with Webb championing science at the agency, NASA launched more than 75 space science missions by the end of the 1960s. But if we are honoring Webb's leadership, it's worth taking a broader look at all the things that happened in government while Webb was in charge. So at the State Department, Jim Webb really pioneered the idea that you could use science um, as a tool for foreign relations. And then separately, he also uh, requested the study and implemented the findings of something called Project Troy, which really set the groundwork for the United States psychological warfare programs throughout the Cold War, with a really broad definition of psychological warfare as basically anything short of live bullets or economic warfare. As a weapon of war, psychological warfare is no novelty. It is as old as war itself. But the use of this force as an integral part of combat has now taken on new forms. And science was a part of that. The, the group had originally been formed to think about how to um, unjam Voice of America broadcasts because the Soviet Union had been jamming their radio broadcasts. But this group really took a much broader uh, interpretation of that mission, thinking about everything from how the United States could exploit uh, Stalin's death to um, how you could use battles 
for prestige, say scientific prestige, uh, to win hearts and minds around the world. The space race and the Apollo program, of course, were also a big part of the Cold War. The thing to understand about how Jim Webb saw the Apollo project is that on the one hand, yes, this was a scientific project. It was a technological spectacle. For Jim Webb, the point of the Apollo program was always to demonstrate the benefits of the so-called American way of life to the rest of the world, that the Apollo program was part of the Cold War contest to win the allegiance, uh, particularly of leaders in newly independent countries, to convince them that the way that think that that the way that leaders did things in the United States and that the way that the government worked in the United States was preferable to that in the Soviet Union. The Cold War was closely interwoven into many of the activities Webb was involved in at the State Department and NASA. Another major aspect of that was the systematic purging of suspected gay employees known today as the Lavender Scare. Two Republican congressmen claim Russia keeps a list of homosexuals in U.S. government jobs. Four State Department employees resigned last year while under... Senator McCarthy testified today that a homosexual had been hired by the Central Intelligence Agency after the State Department allowed him to resign. The department is considered homosexuals and other sexes to be a security risk. The Lavender Scare was closely tied to the Red Scare, a frenzy drummed up by Senator Joseph McCarthy and others that communists were hiding in the U.S. government. In February 1950, McCarthy claimed that over 200 communists were working for the State Department. Even if there were only one communist in the State Department, that would still be one communist too many. During Webb's February 13th staff meeting, they discussed vigorously defending the quality of the department's security against McCarthy's accusations. And in an effort to do so, later that day, Deputy Undersecretary John Purifoy told the Congressional Committee that the State Department had already been actively working to remove security threats from their employment roster. None of them were communists, but of the 202 people they had fired over the previous two years, 91 were suspected to be homosexuals. As stated in historian David Johnson's book on the Lavender Scare, rather than see the revelation as evidence of an effective security system, Many interpreted it as proof that the State Department, perhaps the entire government, was infiltrated with sexual perverts. Senator Clyde Huey was tasked with investigating the situation. Huey told his chief counsel, I don't want any public hearings at all on this matter. I want it as low-key as possible. Do it thoroughly, investigate it from hell to breakfast, but we're not going to have any hearings that McCarthy can make big headlines out of. Senator Huey asked Jim Webb how his committee could work together with the executive branch on the investigation. On June 22nd, during one of Webb's regular meetings with President Truman, they discussed Senator Huey's request. I informed the president that Senator Huey had wished me to find out how his committee and the executive branch could work together on the homosexual investigation, and he advised me to say to the senator that he was sure we could find a proper basis for cooperation. He approved a suggestion that Mr. Murphy, Mr. Spingarn, and I see Senator Huey on Saturday to discuss the necessary problems involving this cooperation. James E. Webb. To prepare for the meeting with Senator Huey, the Assistant Secretary of State for Administration, Carlisle Humelzine, sent James Webb a package of information on June 24th. This included suggestions on how the Senate committee should conduct its investigation and how the State Department should work with him as well as a background paper on the problem of homosexuals and sex perverts in the Department of State. This was quite literally a state-sponsored manifesto of homophobia, describing homosexuals as emotionally unstable and 
abhorrent and repugnant to the mores of American society. But it also gives a lot of background information. As the document mentions, the government had no rules against the employment of homosexuals, and it wasn't until just recently that anyone really considered it a problem. In 1947, Humelstein's predecessor, John Purifoy, took it upon himself to start ordering really intrusive investigations into the State Department's employees to seek out possible homosexuals. By 1950, there were two full-time security staff members devoted to these investigations, which involved inquiries at all places of employment, all residences and habitats. They tried to determine if any friends or associates were homosexual, and placed employees under surveillance to determine if they were visiting any known homosexual places. Suspected employees were interrogated by the investigator and the chief of the Division of Departmental Personnel or Foreign Service Personnel. If they came to the conclusion that the employee was homosexual, they were promptly fired. And again, at the time, there was no actual rule against homosexuals being employed in the government. Humelstein's stated argument for firing them, in addition to thinking they were repugnant, was that... Most homosexuals are weak, unstable, and fickle people who fear detection and who are therefore susceptible to the wanton designs of others. So the State Department considered homosexuals a security risk. And according to Executive Order 9835, signed by President Truman in 1947, agencies were responsible for ensuring that disloyal employees were not retained. In the very next paragraph, though, Humelstein admits that... We have no evidence, however, that these designs of others have caused a breach of security of the department. In fact, throughout the Lavender Scare, no one ever had evidence of a U.S. government employee being blackmailed into giving a foreign power state secrets due to their sexual orientation. But that did not stop the State Department from devoting considerable resources to subjecting its employees to surveillance of the most personal aspects of their lives. Equipped with this information, Jim Webb met with Senator Huey on June 28th, along with Stephen Spingarn and Charles Murphy, two of President Truman's advisors. According to Spingarn's account of the meeting, Webb gave the senator that paper Humelstein wrote, the Manifesto of the State Department's Homophobic Viewpoints and Justifications for Firing Homosexual Employees. They discussed whether any part of the Senate hearing should be public. Huey and Spingarn said they thought maybe the medical testimony should be public and the rest in executive session, but Jim Webb wasn't sure, and they all agreed they would think about it some more. As far as we know from easily accessible information, that was the extent of Webb's direct involvement with the Senate hearings. According to the suggested process written up by Carlisle Humelstein, Humelstein himself would serve as the department's spokesperson on the Senate investigation, while Webb and Secretary Dean Acheson would be kept informed of all significant developments and should be available for behind-the-scenes activities when necessary. With a generally homophobic society, most members of the public and Congress were all too ready to believe the sorts of positions touted in Humelstein's memo to Jim Webb. The majority of other government agencies also agreed, but not all of them. For example, the acting director of the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service told the committee, Since it is possible, according to our understanding of medical and psychiatric opinion on the subject, for a homosexual to lead a normal, well-adjusted life, we do not consider that such a person necessarily constitutes a bad security risk. After the Senate subcommittee's investigation, their report stated that homosexuals should be fired for two reasons. First, they are generally unsuitable, and second, they constitute security risks. 
The State Department's actions and the Senate subcommittee's report caused the practice of tracking down and firing suspected homosexual employees to spread widely across the federal government and initiated decades of homophobic policies. President Eisenhower signed Executive Order 10450 in 1953, which explicitly added sexual perversion as a reason for an individual being unsuitable for government employment. By the time Jim Webb became NASA Administrator in 1961, some of the media and congressional attention to the Lavender Scare had died down, but many agencies were still regularly targeting queer employees. On October 22, 1963, NASA budget analyst Clifford Norton was driving his car near Lafayette Square. Two police officers from the Moral Squad saw Norton pick up a man, drive around the block, and drop him off in the same spot, at which point the man drove off in a separate car. The officers followed both men to Norton's apartment building, where they arrested the two of them in the parking lot and took them to the Morals office to issue a traffic violation for speeding. The police interrogated both men for two hours about their activities and sexual histories. Meanwhile, the head of the Moral Squad called over the NASA security chief, who arrived at 3 a.m. and watched the last part of the police interrogation as Norton continued to deny the homosexual accusations. Then the security chief brought Clifford Norton over to NASA headquarters, where he and a colleague interrogated Norton until 6 a.m. Through these hours of late-night interrogation, Norton conceded that he sometimes experienced homosexual desires when drinking, but continued to deny he was a homosexual. After the interrogations, Clifford Norton's supervisor said he believed Norton was a competent employee doing very good work, and he asked personnel officers whether there was any way to avoid firing Norton, because he didn't think this was a real security problem to worry about. The personnel officers told the supervisor that it was custom within the agency to fire anyone involved in homosexual conduct. So, Norton was fired due to possessing traits of character and personality that render him unsuitable for further government employment. Custom within the agency implies that NASA fired others as well. There isn't any easily accessible information on how many suspected homosexual people NASA interrogated and fired during Jim Webb's administration. The only reason we know about Clifford Norton is because he fought back. Norton called up Frank Kameny, who at that point was known for advocating for government employees who were dismissed over their sexuality. In fact, Frank Kameny was an astronomer who the American Astronomical Society has celebrated for his leadership in the gay rights movement. He got started because he was trained at Harvard by Cecilia Pankapushkin uh, to be an astronomer. He went and he worked for the U.S. Army um, uh, with his astronomy degree, and he was fired. And he was so outraged by that that he turned it into a lifelong pursuit of activism of, of getting these laws changed. This is at a time when people in my profession were in higher demand than they had been in all of human history. And I could not get a job specifically because of homosexuality. And I am not alone. I know many people who have done the same. I've seen careers ruined, uh, lives destroyed for no other reason. These were people with a great deal to offer to society, simply because society uh, is prejudiced against them and will not allow them equality of opportunity. He coined the term, K is good. And therefore they're like, if it's good, and if it's an inherited good thing for us to be out, then it cannot be a security risk, because that was always the argument. Frank Kameny helped gather facts on the case and referred Clifford Norton to an attorney with the ACLU. After a prolonged legal battle, 
The U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in 1969 that federal employees could not be fired solely on the grounds of being homosexual. Homosexuality would justify dismissal only if it demonstrably affected the employee's performance on the job. NASA's Clifford Norton case and efforts from activists like astronomer Frank Kameny slowly turned the tide on institutional homophobia. But government discrimination against queer people continued for years. Should someone be able to serve their country if they say they are homosexuals? The State Department in 2017 made a partial public apology for the Lavender Scare, but NASA and other agencies have never apologized for their participation. And as far as we know, no effort was ever made to compensate the victims or their family members. Thanks to the Just Space Alliance for letting us rebroadcast their video. We'll play the next half of this video on our next show. If you want to see the entire video, go to YouTube and search for Behind the Name, James Webb Space Telescope. Or you can visit our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. You've been listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. Thanks for listening and see you next week.